Okay, well, we are um, studying church history. We're in the early church, the ancient church, uh, which we've designated as 5 BC to 590 AD. Five, yeah, 590 AD. And we're not, we've. Um, Last time we were here, we made it all the way into the church fathers. Remember this sheet of paper? If you do not have it and want it, of course you may not want it. There's some back on that back table back there. Um, like I said, you don't have to have it. Uh, we were talking about the apostolic fathers. Um, the early church apostolic fathers. We call them the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which means before the Council of Nicaea, which will be in 325 A.D. These earliest fathers are really are some of the disciples of the disciples, and they really had a, an important job in carrying on the teachings of the, of, uh, of the disciples, of Jesus. Uh, we talked about Ignatius and Polycarp, so that would put us at Pseudo-Barnabas. Uh, he is called Pseudo-Barnabas, not because he was some other, but because he's not the Barnabas of the, of the New Testament. He's not that Barnabas. Though it has the name Barnabas, he's not that Barnabas. It's the epistle of Barnabas. Um, the pseudo-Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas was written uh, by someone other than Barnabas. Somewhere around, uh, it was written about 130 A.D. By some Christian from Alexandria. Um, the letter of Pseudo-Barnabas was written to offer, well, to help converts from what he calls paganism. So anything that's not um, Christianity. Um, apparently some Jewish Christians were trying to persuade them that the law of Moses should be observed. Going back to that same idea that they were facing in Acts, remember Acts chapter 15, they had that, do you have to become a Jew first? Well, that tradition carried on into, uh, you know, Galatians talks about it too, that that tradition carries on into the Christian world. And so they say that you have to obey the law of Moses and it's still being enforced. So therefore you should follow the law of Moses. And then on top of that, Christianity. So you should be, in other words, you should be a Jew first, and as well as a Christian. And so this letter of Barnabas is um, fights against this uh, by showing the life and death of of Christ uh, are completely adequate for salvation, and you don't need to follow the the observe the laws of of Moses. Uh, he will argue that the Mosaic covenant ends with the death of Christ. In his his uh, pseudo bar his his letter his epistle of Barnabas, um, 
in the last four chapters of that, there's, I want to say 21 chapters, but don't quote me on that one. The last four chapters um, present the contrast between the way of light and the way of what he calls the black one. So the evil, and I don't know, uh, some people have said that that's racist, some say it's just black representing evil, as in darkness. Um, I don't know what he meant there, I'd never met the man. <laughs> um, but there have been those, those arguments going on, what does he mean by the way of the black one? That's what he calls it, the way of light and the way of the black one. Um, and the reader urges to follow the way of life. Um, it's actually going to be reminiscent to something that we will see that he's probably um, familiar with the Didache, which you'll actually see we haven't talked about yet, but it's going to be the Didache is the last uh, thing we'll talk about on in that, the, the forefathers section um, here. So on this piece of paper, it's the... The last one there, in that first section, the Didache. Um, that would lead us to all right. Batteries went dead on that one. That's cool. I've got more tools. I always pronounce this name wrong. Diognitus, Netus? I don't know. I always mispronounce it. Um, anyways, this is a tutor of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, maybe. There was a tutor of Marcus Aurelius named this, and uh, many believe that he's the one who wrote this letter. Marcus Aurelius was a... Who's, who knows what, who Marcus Aurelius is? You guys know your Roman history? Marcus Aurelius, uh, um, one of the Caesars. Um, yeah, maybe I should teach a class on Roman history too. <laughs> um, anyways, um, Some will argue that it was written by this guy. Some will argue that it was um, um, written by an anonymous writer in the late 2nd or 3rd century. Um, it's ranked among the, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers only by custom. Because it is an ap apostolic, which means it makes a defense of the faith. Um, but it was probably written later than the rest of these um, very well, the evidence seems to suggest that it might have well been written later than the rest of these. So we're talking about um, a time, but it is by, um, um, by tradition held in this section. Uh, the writer here presents a rational defense of Christianity by showing the folly of idolatry, the inadequacy of Judaism and the superiorism of Christianity in beliefs, character, and, um, 
and the benefits it offers to converts. Um, All right, I want to skip second epistle of Clement because we already talked about Clement. So let's go to, oh yeah, battery's your day. The, well, I guess we could talk about him. I don't know. Let's go to Papias. Um... We already talked about Clement, so let's just skip on. Um, Papias is an interesting character. Um, he interprets the saying of the Lord as written in... Uh, he he um, is the bishop of a place called Hierapolis in Phygira. Uh And he is very well may have been a disciple of John. And the guy who wrote John, First John, Second John, Third John, traditionally the Book of Revelation as well. That John, uh, Pharisees has said that he might actually be a disciple of John, um, and so he's writing down the life. His document deals with the life and words of Christ. He's trying to 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 write out uh, what might have been. Um, Passing teachings passed on by by John. Uh, the document itself in his letters writes, um, we only have um, fragments of it left. Uh, so we don't actually have the full writings of his stuff. We only have fragments of it left. We know um, um, stuff from Irenaeus and Eusebius uh, f- have fragments of his works. Um, He, um, if you're in the book of Revelation and you're like the millennial view, you know, the thousand year period, um, Papias is obviously a proponent of that viewpoint. Um, he, um, he's the one who tells us that Mark was probably the interpreter of Peter. And actually that the first work of Matthew that we don't have was written in the Hebrew language. We don't have that copy of, he, of Matthew. We only have the Greek copies. So kind of cool there. Um, so uh, his works is kind of interesting because they are um, fragmented. Um yeah, he was the bishop of Hierapolis, and because he's that, I actually wanted to watch a video on Hierapolis. Five-minute video on Hierapolis, because I figure most of you don't know where Hierapolis is. Thank you. <laughs> About to try to click again. All right, we're going to need some sound.
Colossae and Hierapolis, Epiphras's Mission Field Paul was a tireless evangelist and important leader in the early church, but he was no maverick. Rather, he worked as part of an extended team or network of missionaries, spreading the good news about Jesus throughout the Gentile territories. When he writes his famous letter to the church at Colossae, he's writing to nurture and admonish a church founded not by himself, but by another Christian missionary named Epiphras. Given the importance of Colossae as site of a congregation that received a letter from Paul and was founded by one of Paul's associates, it's astonishing that Roman Colossae remains completely unexcavated. This is a view from the mound upon which the ancient colony was built. Erosion along the slopes of the mound has done more than archaeology to reveal the remains of this Roman colony. The remains of a necropolis or cemetery are visible at a small remove from the mound. Hierapolis, by contrast with Colossae, has been rather thoroughly excavated, though many of the discoveries post-date Paul's lifetime. According to Colossians 4 verse 13, Hierapolis was home to a Christian community at the time of Paul and was part of the mission field of Epiphras along with the nearby cities of Colossae and Laodicea. This gate was erected by the proconsul Frontinus in honor of the emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD. It was the main entrance to the city on the north side. Public latrines were available immediately inside the Domitian Gate to relieve weary travelers or the city's residents. Remains of the large public buildings flank Frontina Street as one heads south into the city. These include the remains of what might have been the Bulletarium, or Council Chamber of Hierapolis. The semicircle seating resembles other structures clearly identified as Bulletaria, such as the one in Miletus. About halfway between the north and south gates of the city sits a nymphium, a large structure built around a pool where residents were welcome to draw water. This was also a sacred site featuring busts of the city's gods, including Zeus, Hera, Artemis, Apollo, and Selene. East of the nymphium sits a temple to Apollo, a building that certainly existed by the first century. Below the southeastern corner of the platform of Apollo's temple is a very rare relic of ancient religious practice, a plutonium. This was a shrine dedicated to Pluto, the god of the underworld, located at what was believed to be one of the entrances into Hades. The underground cavern emitted poisonous gases that killed the animals that the priests of Pluto carried into the place as sacrifices, the priests having first been trained to hold their breath for long periods of time. Unlike most theaters remaining from antiquity, the newer Roman period theater in Hierapolis has a well-preserved and carefully reconstructed stage area. The present theater was built during the reign of Hadrian, sometime between 117 and 138 AD, though there was no doubt a theater in the city prior to this. The stage was decorated with ornate friezes, depicting scenes from the mythic stories of the goddess Artemis. She was revered throughout Rome and Asia as the remains of huge temples to the goddess in Ephesus, Sardis, and Didyma bear witness. Dignitaries enjoyed special front and center seating in the theater of Hierapolis. Such special reserved seating was a common feature of the architecture of these public buildings, as seating was a reflection of honor. This is a scene from the decorative frieze running the length of the stage of the Hierapolis Theater. Here we see Artemis hunting with her bow from a chariot drawn by hearts. This is another scene from the decorative frieze running the length of the stage of the Hierapolis Theater. Here we see the consecration of a cult image of the goddess Artemis. The image closely resembles the cult statue from the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, but it was probably a widely used type.
Like every important Greek city, Hierapolis had a gymnasium where youths were trained in the culture and leisure activities of the civilized Greek world, and where, as adults, they could continue to enjoy engaging in athletics and socializing in the baths. Here we see the sparse remains of the front of the gymnasium, located toward the southern end of the city. Epiphras planted the Christian congregation in Hierapolis. Others, like Philip the Evangelist, were remembered to have watered it. Indeed, local tradition holds that Philip had been martyred for his work there. A 5th century shrine marks the traditional site of his execution. The church in Hierapolis would have long-lasting fruits. It would produce the early 2nd century bishop and scholar Papias and would continue to grow into the 4th and 5th centuries when the church was sufficiently powerful to suppress local pagan cults, for example, by filling in the plutonium. Hierapolis. Isn't the old stuff so cool? Um, yeah. So that was where um, Papias was bishop at. And if I'm going too fast, need to ask questions, please. If I'm getting too long-winded, just let me know. All right. Um, in the first century apostolic fathers, they also had uh, apocalyptic literature. What's apocalyptic literature? We've talked about this. I heard you. I'm just not sure. I yeah, it usually does occur about the end times. What's apocalyptic mean? Remember what it meant? Not World War Three. Hidden things. Hidden things. So this is a, uh, so a literature that are apocalyptic will reveal hidden things. We often associate them with the end times. Though there are people that interpret that not as the end times, but as just hidden things in the future. Or um, doesn't have to be end times. Um, the primary um, this one is the shepherd of Hermas um, which you can see on your letter there on, on that piece of paper there which is modeled after the book of Revelation it's probably written about 150 by Hermas, who was considered um, by um, the writer of the uh, Maturian canon to be the brother of uh, Pius, the bishop of Rome, uh, between 140 and 155. Um, the Maturian canon is a um, fragmented list that we have that contains a list of the New Testament scriptures. Um, probably those um, recognized by the Roman church 
about towards the end of the second century. Remember, the Bible hadn't been finalized, and that's not finalized till uh, you know. And it, when we say finalized, it develops. Biblical history doesn't just like, okay, this group came together and said, this is what it is. It develops over time. Um, it may be finalized, this group come together and say, okay, this is what we're going to say. But it's because they've already taken all this history and this time and this, you know, time has passed. And, and uh, so this is one of those lists that you say, where did the Bible come from? This is one of those lists. It's a fragment of the list. They say, well, this is what they were considering by this time period to be canon. And so that had developed over time. Um, so, anyways, the Shepherd of Harmon is written uh, in the form of Revelation. Uh, it's got a lot of symbols and vision, and its aim is both moral and practical. Um, the writer had been a slave and, um, of a Christian woman in Rome, and she frees him. And um, he becomes a rich businessman. Uh, but in the process, he neglects his own family and, uh, and is in the family uh, consequently falls into what they call vile sin. So um, he and his wife uh, repent, confess their sin, but his children turn against the faith and lose uh, loses all, and he loses all the possessions. And out of this experience comes the work, which is designed to call all sinners to repent. Um, so, repentance and holy living are the key notes of this work. Um, in the work, it says that a um, an angel. And a woman give him all the, this this message. Um, if you go and read it, which you can, it's it's uh, in the public domain, which means it's free. You just search it online. Um, the first section consists of five visions that emphasize the need to repent in different symbols, um, followed by twelve mandates or commandments depicting the code of ethics that are uh, repented one should follow in order to be pleased by God. The final section is made up of ten um, parables in which the main theme is um, repent. <laughs> and um, so uh, it's all about this repentance in life. The writer, uh, the shepherd, is, is concerned with individual uh, in relation to the Christian society in the church. Um, this is a, a section of it taken from Lake's Apostolic Fathers uh, in English, obviously, not in Latin. Um, I don't know, anyone want to read that for us?
Don't sin. That's right. Don't sin. Repent. Um, the whole book kind of follows that theme. <laughs> um, repent. Don't sin. Um, next one we're going to talk about. Catechism. Uh, I knew how to say this word this afternoon. Cataclytical literature. Um, anyone know what that big word means? Who knows what catechism is? Teaching? Yeah, it's 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 teaching, and 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 a lot of the Catholic or the Orthodox have catechism, where you go through a schooling period. Um, the word there means relating to religious instruction. So, religious instruction. Um, and, um, and I put it on there because it is on your sheet that you're looking at here. Um, Catechal literature. Uh, the, the one there that was written in this time period is the Didache. Um, the Didache is a little book. Um, it's the teaching through the 12 apostles to the nation. Uh, this book is um, actually came to light, I guess, in the year 1873 when a man um, discovered it in um, uh, an ecclesial library in Constantinople. It was just sitting in this library and he, he uh, you know, among the books and had been forgotten about. And so in 1873, it was found, he publishes a copy of it in 1883. Um, and the manual, uh, it's a manual of church. It, it's, uh, it's, it, so it was most likely composed before the middle of the second century. Um, though some contend at the end of the first century, because uh, it does resemble some of the practices in the New Testament. So, second, first century work. Um, it closely resembles the two ways of life in that pseudo-Barnabas we talked about already. Um, the ethical actions consist of a Christian life is set forth in contrast with deeds of those who follow the way of death. Um, Liturgical issues are talked about in this book, like baptism and fasting and communion. Um, interesting enough, we still follow baptism and communion, fasting. I'm in trouble right? <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I'm wanting a Big Mac right now just thinking about fasting. Um <laughs> uh, but um, it does have instructions on how to distinguish a false prophet, um, how to find worthy officials, um, you know, a false prophet is one who seeks food and lodging without getting anything in return to the church, um, talks about the need to be watchful and consistent in life in views of coming to the Lord it, um, I think the, the what most people talk about when they read this though is, is it gives us a clear picture 
of, um, of life in the early church between 95 and 150 A.D. So it really tells us about what church was like during that time period. And how cool is that, right? Um, as we talk about that, let's talk about church. Let's, let's kind of, we're on the same gear, but let's kind of switch gears here. Uh, as we talk about that, let's um, let's get off the the fathers for a mi- for a few minutes. We're, we're going to put them to rest for a few minutes. Well, probably for the rest of the evening. Um, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and put this piece of paper up because I'm we're going to be done for a little bit with that. Um, let's talk about church in the uh, church in the early church. Church in the early church. You ever thought about that? What does church look like back there in 95, 150, second century? What does church actually look like? I mean, we know it doesn't look like this. I mean, they didn't have microphones and projectors and even hymnals. Um, that's, those, those are actually very, um, I think we've got to go, um, before we even start looking at that, um, Early Christianity, early church is actually quite problematic. What does it look like? We have some glimpses. Um, well, first, how do we define what early is? You ever thought about that? I mean, just, just go back. What, is, what, is, what does early mean? Well, how do we define when the church of it starts? I mean, this is... At what point do we say, well, we separated, you know, Jesus, you know, ancient church um, sometimes these things are changing very quickly as people are Gentiles are coming into the faith and Jews are coming to the faith and they're intermingling in ways that they were not intermingling before and, and we're having councils and like saying well do you have to become a Jewish first and Paul is teaching and, and the Romans come in and we got people from different you know different walks of different cultures, different way of worshiping, coming together. You know, this group followed the, the, uh, the, the church in Ephesus, you know, and they were largely surrounded by the Artemis culture. And then we had this, you know, with, with uh, priests, uh, with uh, the, and so we have these developing practices. You know, what does it look like? Uh, sometimes we think the church moves too slow, and sometimes it does, but uh, always influenced by the people of the church. Um, so you could go with the earliest part would be after the ascension of Jesus. That would probably be like the earliest point you, at it. you could definitely do that, but then they're all still Jews at that point. Right. <laughs> but to answer what it looks like, I would actually venture to say that depending on the time period, it could be hidden. Like taking place in almost like in secret. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the persecution periods in a, next week. Okay, first, before we say that, uh, church, is, when we say the word church, we're going to clarify, right? It involves two levels, right? One is the body of believers. That's the organic 
But then we also say church, and that's the temporal, where we've got historical, visible, human, institution, organization, right? So we have, like, you could say, like, the, the people and the religious side, right? So, okay, so, we're, so when we're, at, we're saying what does the church look like, we're talking about the temporal, in that time period, historical, because if we say just the body believer, well, it looked like the people, right? Because it is the people. So we're just we're talking about like how does we got to clarify that right? We are talking about how they worshipped and how they practiced and the religious organizational side of that when we when we say that, um, because church history sometimes talks about that and sometimes it's just about how the people are worshiping right how, how the people are doing. Um, they did. Um, the development of the church as an organization was actually left to the ap- apostolic fathers uh, and guided to the Holy Spirit um, under its leadership and, and, um, and liturgy. All these writings that we've been talking about formed how the people worship. Um, the early Christians did not seem to think of church as a place to worship. Um, as we use like the word today, like let's go to church, they would they would not have thought in those terms. It was let's gather as the church. Um, would have been more appropriate for what they would see. Um, that that let's go to church kind of mentality um, that would have been so foreign to them, because the church is not the building. Uh, in fact, they would not develop the kind of buildings we have till much later. Um, Church was the group of people, and um, and they met in homes. They met in um, temple at the Jewish temple. Uh, they met in public auditoriums. I heard someone say that they met in schools. Uh, like I know we guys met in schools sometimes. Churches still meeting in schools. Uh, that is, uh, they would meet in schools. Um, they would meet in the synagogues as long as they're permitted to do so. Um, they would meet outside. For them, for what we call the early church, let's say before 150, um, the place is not as important as the manner of the meeting. You know, doesn't matter if we have a building to go to or not. We're going to meet and we're going to you know, whether it be in the home, the courtyard, you know, we're gonna um, we're gonna worship God. Uh, very well, could have been. Well, that depends on where you're at. Um, like bigger cities probably had more set places, like amphitheaters. We know that. Uh, in Ephesus, Paul preached an amphitheater for, what, three years? Uh, so they'd be like, okay, let's rent out the, the school, and that's where we're at for the next three years. So that, pro- that was probably very set. Uh, other places probably were very, let's meet at your house this week. We're going to meet at your house next week. We're gonna, uh, some of them probably follow the same tradition. Well, there's, you know, let's go meet by the river because there's no synagogue because there's more of a Jewish influence there. Um, so, wherever, so that would have changed via the regional, yeah, and uh, 
as it becomes more developed, you'll see more of a structure start to come to place. We also say like how they worship, like what it, um, what worship looked like. You know, like when we they do come together. At first, it was probably pretty regional. Um, you know what your influences were in that region, and that's how it come together. You would do it according to how it came together in that tradition. Um, For example, um, um, you know, if you're used to worshiping this way at your old temple, you might bring some of that in, and as long as you're worshiping this God, it's not, you know, not necessarily bad. We do the same, you know, like uh, Christmas will develop that way. As they're used to, you know, we're, you know, celebrating at some time, at the same time, it'll start to develop into, well, let's focus it on Jesus, and it'll start to develop Christmas. You know, it's not necessarily, it's not like one person got together and said, this is what we're doing. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process. And as it develops, and then as they become more linked and become more bishop-centered, like this is the bishop of Alexandria, this is the bishop of Rome, this is the bishop of which happens relatively quickly in church history, uh, surprisingly quickly, in my opinion, surprisingly quickly, they form like bishops over sections. And I guess it surprises me, but at the same time, it doesn't. I mean, we like to have kind of a leadership model, you know, uh, how should we run things and stuff like that. We like we 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 like that, you know. Um, yeah, by the second century, it was all developed. Um, during it seems during the first from the writings we do have on the first on the first uh, it um, it seems that there were two services held on the first day of the week by the first century it was already uh, the Christians had already switched from Saturday to Sunday um, not as Sabbath necessarily but as the day they worshipped on. Um, a lot of times we get that confused. Well, my Sabbath is on Sunday. Well, absolutely, but that's not what the Sabbath was still being held on Saturday, Friday night through Saturday evening. And then they would worship Christ on Sunday. Um, and that had developed, though, in Acts, I mean, in Luke, it's very likely, I threw this out in my sermon, we don't know, because Luke could have been a Greek writer, and he could have been talking about Sunday, but it's very likely that they were worshiping Saturday night, which would be technically Sunday, because it's evening and then morning, according to the Jewish um, calendar way of thinking, so that it would be Sunday, but it's Saturday evening, for us, Saturday evening, till late. Um, but at some point, they just say, well, let's just meet in the morning. <laughs> um, and we don't know exactly when that switch happened, but at some point, they say, let's meet in the morning. Um, and um, so two separate services would be held on the first day of the week. Um, and um, this probably came about for a number of reasons. Uh, one being it's the day that Christ rose. Uh, which is the good church answer. Uh, there's also other reasons why that would have developed as well that aren't so good, uh, like anti-Semiticism. As the Christians start going against the Jewish roots of it and start 
arguing against Judaism, they would say, well, we don't want to worship on the same day they do. I don't want to worship on Sunday. Because um, anti-Semiticism is definitely a part of that, that transition. Um, and then also things like they might have been worshiping on Sunday as well, and they said, let's just meet in the morning. I'm tired. And so these things develop. It's not like they got together and said, well, we hate them Jews. Let's switch, you know. Or, oh, this is the day of the Lord. You know, it, it starts to develop. One person says, well, let's just meet on Sunday, the first day because that's when Christ arose. And, and they said, well, we're already meeting on Sunday because it's in, so, well, let's meet in the morning. And these things develop over time. It's not, not uh, we take for granted like, we, like the Renaissance happens here at this date. And that's not how things actually work. Um, history is, we, we, we give strange dates, but that's not really how things develop. History is much more nuanced than that. Um, that's why I love the discussion we're having right now with all this uh, CRT and stuff like that, because it's, people are asking these questions, but then, you know, you got your black and white, but it's forcing other people to look at the black and white, not just skin color, but the black and white of history. Um, you know, there is no just, this is what happened, and this is the date, and this is the, things develop and, 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 and change, and, and, and we, as I said the first week, we dialogue with the past, and I love dialoguing with the past. I don't like just talking about the past, I love dialoguing with the past, because that's how we look at things. We can't just say, well, they were wrong because they're wrong. Well, in their way of view, they were right, and why were they think they're right? What was the, what was the day? We dialogue with that so much more beautiful that way, and we learn more that way than just saying, "Hey, our way is best now," and then in two hundred years or ten years, they look back and say, "You guys are really dumb." <laughs> um, we dialogue with the past. Um, okay, so um, the morning service would include reading of the scriptures. Um, exhortation by the leaders or elder prayers. There would be prayers and singing. And we don't know, like, you know, didn't necessarily sound like, okay, well, there's three songs. And we sit down. Every church I've ever been has these, these patterns, whether, you know, like at one church it was the first song you stood up for and greeted each other, the second song you sat down, then the third song you stood back up, and the fourth <laughs> You know, and there was the stand up, sit down, sit down, sit down a, a, a pattern, and that was just the way they always did it. And that's they formed that, and that's uh, not really that uncommon. Every church has that kind of that nuance how they they fell into their pattern. Um, after they would have after the scripture reading and then the exhortation or the preaching, we could say the prayers and the singing. Then they would have what's called a love feast, which you guys might have read about in First Corinthians. Um, or agape meal. Um, and which would uh, precede the communion, uh, the cup being passed, and uh, during the evening service. Um, by the end of the first century, uh, the love feast was generally dropped and communion was celebrated during the morning service. So, Sometime during the first century, they dropped that meal and just went to communion. Um, it probably, in my opinion, it probably happened when the church started getting bigger and bigger and they were having more and more trouble just getting everyone together and feeding everybody. And, and this group was wealthy and so they were bringing a lot and they didn't want to share with this group and it was causing divisions. 
and 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 problems and you know and then this group said I only like egg whites and this one no I like the yolks and you know um, I'm a vegetarian and um, I, if it's not vegan it's not godly you know at some point they just said you know enough is enough and they just kind of dropped that meal <laughs> uh, saved it for the potluck right uh, <laughs> um, but they did. At some point, they dropped it, and they just started having the communion during the morning service. Um, uh, um, in a work by Phil, uh, Flinney, which we have, uh, uh, described uh, to Trajan um, as, uh, this is uh, not a Christian work, but uh, he says, Christians are those who meet before daybreak, sing hymns, and took vows to lead ethical lives. <laughs> so at some point they were meeting before daybreak even, uh, even started. So how do you guys like that? We'll just move the service up a few hours. We'll just, we'll just meet at 4 o'clock, 4.30. How's that sound to you guys? <laughs> I think service, it, it, it would, our attendance would go up or down. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've got to remember, a lot of that is in a time period when Sabbath was on Saturday, so they were off from work on Saturday. They were meeting to worship before the sun got up, before they went to work. Uh, that idea of taking Sabbath off does develop later on as they separate themselves from the Jew- Judaism, and it becomes a... Uh, a religion, the one religion, the the religion of the people, uh, in and the government, which we'll talk about later, uh, when Const- uh, Constantine comes about. But um, a lot of these people were worshiping before they went to work. Um, actually, you know that's why we have two days off in the United States is because they didn't know if we should follow the Jewish or the Christian as they were coming over. So we get Saturday and Sunday off in the United States because of that, as, uh, to please both the Jewish and the Christian immigrant. Um, so, so thank you for diversity and that we get two days off. <laughs> um, of course, some of you are like, I just like a day off, right? Um, yeah. Um, we already talked about that. It was not uncommon for services to last about three hours during this time period. Um, Lord's Supper, baptism, um, communion only those who are baptized could partake in communion during this time period that's uh actually been a big discussion in churches is who can partake in communion no no we're baptized had been baptized uh as a symbol of true believers that's a big discussion in churches uh even today uh, who can take communion uh we at this church have an open communion so anyone can come in and 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 partake and we leave that for their decision. Um, but some churches, it's only members can partake. Some churches, it's only if you are saved, you can partake. Um, 
Some it's only those within the the the, the inner circle can partake. It's uh, you know different um, different churches have different rules on the on the these things. Um, yeah. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, practicing communion, um, of course, that depends on the church, obviously. If they don't allow you to, then... But um, the big difference between most Protestants and the Catholic views on on, um, on communion will develop, actually, relatively early, but um, it's the idea of transubstantiation. Uh, Does it... According to the Catholic faith, it becomes the body as you take it. Like you eat it, it becomes the body. It becomes the wine. And most Protestants, uh, you know, it's uh, symbolized. It's a symbol. Um, on that subject, there was a... Alan Moore wrote a bo- uh, comic book called... Um, Vias for Vendetta. They made a movie out of that too. Um, but the comic book, um, he poisons um, one of these ladies uh, by giving it to her in her communion. And uh, he said if it was real transubstantiation, she wouldn't have died. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was not in the movie. <laughs> But anyways, that argument will develop as uh, throughout time, and we're actually going to see that that argument come up uh, a couple of different times in in church history. Is is how we look at communion and Lord's Supper, and how does that develop? Um, and we're not we're, we will talk about some more of that later on when that argument starts to come up. Um, and so we'll, we'll um, yeah. Um, yeah, but no, I don't, to answer your question, I don't think you were wrong to take that, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, the congregation often stood uh, for prayers. Um, celebration of the Lord's Supper would follow the kiss of peace. Um, um At the end of the service, or at some point in the sermon, they usually took up a collection, usually not to run the church, though sometimes that was, it was often that will develop that we need to keep the lights on and keep the building up as the, the, as the building develops, so will the need for keeping up the building, um, you know, and having a full-time pastor that will, you know, that develops often, um, at the beginning churches, it was traveling people. Uh, or and they were supported by local people who just supported them. They gave them their home. They, you know, uh, we see this in the old, in the New Testament with like Priscilla and um, uh, and uh, these uh, these wonderful people that Paul talks. The wonderful women. They were opening their homes. They were supporting his ministry. 
uh, because it wasn't the church that was supporting it, it was these, these ladies that were doing it. It was individually supported. Um, but they were, the collections in this case were most often to aid the widows, the orphans, the sick, and the strangers. So if someone couldn't work, they would have money in their benevolence fund to go and help get them through while they're, or to get them the help they need. Um, we're running out of time. It's a little small, I know. Um, this is um, a kind of a reversion of what we just talked about. I forgot I had it on there. Um, yeah, kind of a, 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 the pattern that began to develop by, by 150. This is kind of the pattern that followed. Um, opening by greetings, Old Testament scripture reading, a psalm or a hymn, a New Testament scripture reading. So they read from both the Old and the New Testament during these. Um, remember, uh, hearing comes, uh, faith comes through the hearing of the word. Uh, which is one of the reasons I've started uh, saying, like, before we go through the book of Galatians, we're going to read it as a community. Because uh, I've started being convicted, redoing some of these histories. And I'm like, oh, we should do something more of this hearing of the word. Um, sermon developed by the bishop, usually well seated. And dismissal of all baptized believers. Um, the next part would be the Eucharist. Uh, so you could, So they would, uh, what they would do is like, like, okay, we're done. If you're not baptized, get out. <laughs> they would put it nicely, nicer than that, but that's how it really was. It was like, okay, this is not for you. It's time. There was a dismissal for everyone who was not baptized. Um, I remember being in a church when I was little uh, where, there was communion, and uh, they had a closed communion, and anyone who wasn't baptized was asked to go wait in the fellowship hall. Um, and uh, I remember leaving before I was baptized. I remember leaving, you know, and, and, and my parents staying to be uh, communion. They, I was allowed, and we were left. Um, and they were doing some of that. In this, yeah. No, it was just it was it was when you transfer membership or you move in, you you have your membership and that that has your bad, uh, you know your. Um, this was a, a church within a denomination that you know tracked all those records and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah. Um, that will develop over time as people get develop power um, or you know or someone who was elected um, you know often it was just the person who was speaking you know who was trained and you might have one person in the, in the community that was trained to teach or in the case like Paul sent Timothy and Timothy would become a bishop uh, or what we would call a, a bishop that word bishop actually develops from the Latin but um, we kind of throw it back on history because it's the word that will develop. Um, so like Timothy would be considered a bishop because Paul sent him to that church to, to preach. Um, so that's something that develops the, the, the you know, as, as, as one person um, um, kind of becomes the leader. And they would have elders that would often elect that person. 
Um, Congregational-led was not something they did. It was often elder-led. So you'd have, like, the main elders in the group, the longest, you know, and they would make those decisions. Um, and then often what happens is the leader of the elders becomes the bishop. And then at some points in history, and we'll see some of this, I don't know if we'll talk about it in the class, but at some points in history, they go out and find someone because they're like a lawyer and stuff like that and say, hey, would you like to be the bishop? Even in one case, I can, I can know of one case for sure where the guy wasn't even a Christian. You want to be the bishop? And then he said, yes. And um, Yeah. <laughs> Um, because he was a lawyer and he was well-spoken and stuff like that. And he did bring in people. Uh, that, that, that's later. Um, <laughs> that's later. Um, yeah. So, um, congregational prayers, the Lord's Supper, benediction, and depart in peace. Um, so, yeah, you would have, have those things take place uh, with... Uh, uh, during the uh, after everyone had left, um, I remember someone told me the word for that. They would announce like a certain word. It was like uh, it was the word where mass comes from. Um, anyways, I forget what it is now. Anyways, well, they would they would announce it like now it's time for this like this mass and like you know, and only those were baptized could stay and everyone else had to leave. They would have further congregational hymns and communion. Uh, so. Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of those Latin words that develop as Latin takes over the, 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 um, the primary language. Uh, see, a lot of these, some of these traditions develop as Latin becomes the primary language of the world. The Romans take over and they develop Latin. Becomes, at this time, Latin is used a lot, but it's not the religious language. That's still Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. But as Latin speakers come in, it becomes the language of the church because the, they are, they're speaking Latin, which makes sense. You know, that's how English became our lang, you know, because it, we were all speaking Latin, so that's why we don't speak Latin here in church. Although, if you want, there's still churches out there that just do their masses in, in Latin. I've been to a couple. I don't understand a word they said, but I... <laughs> uh, so... Um, anyways. It is 7 o'clock, and you know I like to be punctual, so... Any questions? All right, next week we're going to talk about some problems. Primarily persecution. That's where we're going to focus, is persecution next week. So some of you guys are like, ooh, that's my favorite section. <laughs> if you want to like persecution, uh, realize that, that as no matter how bad the persecution got, we're going to talk about, it's actually there are places in the world today that more Christians are dying than they did during this time period. Um, um, so, anyways. Would it like to, anyone like to close us out? Thank you, Wendy.
Amen.